Hey guys, we are going to be continuing in our message series called The Great Escape, which is the walk through the book of Exodus. I'm very excited for today's message. Give us a little bit of review. Last week, right, we talked about Exodus 32 verses 15 through 26. In that, we looked at where Moses actually confronted his countrymen and his very own brother, in fact, about their idolatrous practices, right? He really confronted them what they were in the midst of doing. In doing so, he forced them to actually come to a point where they had to be accountable, and then he demanded of them that they would take a stand in deciding whether or not they would serve God or they would serve themselves. That message was called, Who Will You Serve? This morning, right, we're going to stand with Moses as now he's going to bring judgment upon those who stood against the Lord, right? Once they've recognized their failure and they've chosen to serve God, what you're going to see is Moses is going to actually go before the Lord on behalf of the people, and he's going to try to make things right. And this message this morning is called, The Power of of atonement. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we love you. Thank you, God, for the opportunity to bring the word of God. And Lord, I know you have spoken to me. I have no doubt. And Lord, I would ask God now that you would remove sin and anything that might uh, interfere with this message, Lord, that you might speak through me. Father, my desire today is not to be seen. It's not to be heard, but Lord, for you to be heard, for you to be seen. God, on this day of celebration, we celebrate your resurrection, God. We do praise you. Thank you for this message. Pray, God, that you'll get them, uh, be in the midst of it. Lord, use it for your glory. God, I thank you. Just please help me to get out of the way. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, the power of atonement. We're going to be in the Exodus uh, 32 verses, uh, down in uh, verses uh, 27. But to give us a little bit of review, so we make sure we're all on the same page and we're all going to be right up to that moment when we start. Remember, Upon returning with the Ten Commandments, right? Moses has received the Ten Commandments. He comes down. He walks up on the people. He finds them in the midst of idolatry. He shatters the Ten Commandments, and he confronts them right in the midst, right? He walks right in the midst of their whole sinful celebration with the golden calf and their new God, right? Now, the Israelites, they've given way to their flesh. They have given way to their carnality as they dance and convert around this statue, this golden calf. And without hesitation... Moses is going to walk right in the camp. He's going to rebuke the people. He's going to literally destroy the idol, grind it into a fine powder. Then he's going to actually make the Israelites drink it in water, right? So Moses then specifically confronts his brother, right? His older brother, who he left in charge. And Aaron comes up with some ridiculous excuses, right, for his behavior and how things went down. He downplays the seriousness of their sin. And just as a side note, that is always what the devil is going to do. He will always downplay sin, always downplay sin. Now, after the people have taken their medicine, so to speak, uh, Aaron's been confronted and now failure has been, has been, re- been revealed, Moses challenges the people with this commitment, right? And we saw that in Exodus 32, 26. It says this, Then Moses stood in the gate of the camp and said, Who is on the Lord's side? Let him come unto me. And all the sons of Levi gathered themselves together unto him. So what we're going to pick up as we, as we hear is we're going to pick up in verse number 27. I want you to imagine the tense standoff that's taking place. All of the, the, uh, the, the Levites have come to, to Moses. He and Aaron are standing on one side. They're facing off against these people that are opposing God. So as we pick up in our message here, understand this very tense moment. The leadership of the opposition, the stiff-necked, uh, hard-headed Israelites are standing there in refusal to bow to God. Exodus 32, 27. 
And he said unto them, Thus saith the Lord God of Israel, Put every man his sword by his side, and go in and out from gate to gate throughout the camp, and slay every man his brother, and every man his companion, and every man his neighbor. Now, Obviously, this order is not saying for them to kill every man. What it's talking about is those that have specifically opposed God. These are those ones that will not submit to God. Now, they've had a chance to submit. But the process of weeding out bad apples, right, this is something that God has always done, always done throughout the entire history of humanity. In fact, he's done it on a global scale. I want you to think about to, to Genesis chapter 6 through chapter 8. What happened then was God actually judged the world on a global scale and actually wiped out humanity, right? And what happens, in fact, as we look at this aspect of what happened, look at in Genesis 8, 21, look at what God said. And the Lord smelled a sweet savor. And the Lord said in his heart, I will not again curse the ground anymore for man's sake, for the imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I again smite anymore everything living as I have done. So God brought that flood, but now what happens is after the flood, God's going to shift things. And now what we're going to see is judgment is going to be reserved for the individual. It's going to be set aside for humanity to face God as an, with accountability for their rebellion. In fact, what we're going to see in verse 35, which we'll get there in a bit, but in the process of eliminating right those who are sinful and those that were unrepentant, we begin at this time, this whole aspect of this, this, this very sin against the goal of the sin of the golden calf is going to be actually something so important that's going to be remembered and it's going to be a turning point in the walk with the Israelites. In Acts 7, right? This is where Stephen is actually going to be going to the, to the, to the Jewish leadership and he's going to bring up that, that sin of the golden calf as he confronts the Hebrew leadership. And as he does this, he's going to confront them with who Jesus really is and he's going to compel them to repent. He's going to compel them and give an opportunity for them to turn to God. Now, unfortunately, we find out and we know, regrettably, that they will not turn to God. In fact, they're going to turn on Stephen and they're going to, they're going to kill him, right? They're going to murder Stephen. They reject God's offer. But in doing so, they open an opportunity of redemption for the Gentile world because God then shifts his story and shifts his focus onto the Gentile world. That's us. But we're getting ahead of ourselves, okay? So let's get a little bit in deeper into our message. Verse number 28. And the children of Levi did according to the word of Moses, and there fell of the people that day about 3,000 men. So the elimination process takes place. Those that would oppose oppose God, 3,000 that day fall dead. Now keep in mind, these people were not wrongfully charged. They were not innocent. These people were given a choice, and they chose to defy God, right? They wantonly chose to defy God. They were given a chance to repentance. And this is just like people today. There are people today that know of God's judgment. They know what hell is. They understand that God holds us accountable. And at the same time, they understand the love of God, right? They understand the forgiveness of God. Yet in that moment, they will choose destruction. They will choose hell. I can have forgiveness or I can deal with the consequences and deal with the punishment of sin. And people will choose sin, Matthew 7, verses 13 and 14 says this, Enter ye in at the straight gate, for wide is the gate, listen to this, and broad is the way that leadeth to destruction, and many there be which go in thereat. That's saying, look, you know what? A majority of people will not choose Christ. They will literally choose destruction. 
Verse 14, because straight is the gate, and narrow is the way which leadeth unto life, and few there be that find it. God says, look, I've given, there's two paths. There's one that's easy to find. That's destruction. Anybody can find that one. But there's a narrow way through me, through Christ. You can choose to take the narrow way to life. But it says, few there find it. It's our naturally rebellious spirit, right? This is what causes people to defiantly oppose God in favor of their own will. It's natural within us, unfortunately. Yet God, revealing his love for humanity, Right? He doesn't just bring destruction. Because of His grace, God offers choices. He offers opportunities to every person, no matter how rebellious they may, may be. Verse 29, For Moses said, Consecrate yourselves today to the Lord. And, and it says, Even every man upon his son and upon his brother, that he may bestow upon you a blessing this day. In our Wednesday night study, and we've been walking through the book of Philippians, and one of the things we talked about this past week was we talked about this pattern that exists in Scripture where we do our part, and then God does His part. We, God has an expectation for us. We fulfill it, then God fulfills His, right? Notice that Moses tells them to first consecrate themselves, right? Consecrate means to set themselves apart from the world. They're not supposed to be like the world. They're supposed to set themselves apart to be godly, right? And if they'll thoroughly do so, that very thing, in their families as well, that then and only then would God bless them. We see that pattern in 2 Chronicles 7.14, the verse that many of us are very familiar with. If my people which are called by my name shall humble themselves, they must act first, and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, notice the key word, then will I hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and will heal their land. So there's, they'll do their part, then God will do his. Now we jump forward 1,510 years into the future to the, to, to the Apostle Peter. And look at this in 1 Peter 5, 6. Humble yourselves, therefore, into the mighty hand of God. We do our part first, that he may exalt you in due time. If we'll do our part, God will do his part. Also take notice, this is a short-term blessing, right? He says that he might bless them this day. The people have to prove themselves. They're rebuilding their relationship with God. He wants to bless them, but every day they're going to need to prove themselves, just like you and I do every day. Now, that's what we call grace. Grace, right? It's loving or giving love to someone who does not deserve it. And it is one of the main traits that describe the Lord. God is a God of grace. And it is this grace that God has always extended to humanity. We've seen this throughout the history of humanity, God's grace and love. Verse 30, And it came to pass on the morrow that Moses said unto the people, You have sinned a great sin, and now I will go up unto the Lord peradventure. Peradventure means if it's possible. I shall make an atonement for your sins. Moses says, hey, you know what? I'm going to take care of this. Basically, what Moses is saying is, look, because you guys have made such a mess of things and angered God so much, right? I'm going to go see if I can't. Uh, possibly make things right between the you guys, between you guys and God. I'm going to put myself on the line for you. Now, little do the Israelites understand the fact that Moses has already done this. 
Remember when he was back up on the mountain and God said, I'm going to destroy him. And Moses put himself in between him as the intercessor. He risked himself. And in that moment, he understood his level of commitment to the people. He understood it. Now, only this time, he's going to be willing to give himself. He's literally offering himself to gain forgiveness for the people. Verse 31. And Moses returned unto the Lord and said, Oh, this people have sinned a great sin and have, done, and have made them gods of gold. He says, God, look, I know that they did exactly what you told them not to do. I know, God, I know, right? They serve their flesh instead of serving you. They've allowed their lusts and their desires to guide them. Yes, they've done this. They've consciously and purposely stood in rebellion against you. Wow. Does that not describe every single solitary person Every Christian who's ever lived at some point in our lives where we truly, we broke God's law. We served our flesh instead of serving God. We allowed our lust and our desire to guide us, right? We consciously and purposely opposed God. That's us. That's a picture of us. It might even be us at this very moment. You might be watching this and going, you know what? Man, that describes me. But hey, we're much better at hiding it, right, than the Israelites. They, they're so obvious with their sin. We're much better at hiding it, right? Well, let me give you some information. Job 34, 21 and 22 says this, For his eyes are upon the ways of man, and he seeth all his goings, right? It says, There is no darkness nor shadow of death where the workers of iniquity may hide themselves. We cannot hide from God. No matter how sneaky we are, no matter how tricky we are, no matter how many people on this earth do not know, God sees it all. Not only does he see our actions, but he sees our heart. So Moses doesn't sugarcoat things, okay? He doesn't downplay the sin of the people. He confronts it head on. He's seeking to find a way to make restitution for them to restore their relationship with God. That's his desire, right? And what we find scripturally is the fact that the reason for confronting sin is not about bringing de destruction. It's always about restoration. That's always the heart behind confronting sin. That's the why it's done. We see this displayed in regards to church discipline, right? Jesus is going to address this in Matthew 18. This is how he states it in Matthew 18, 15. He says, moreover, if thy brother shall trespass against thee, someone has done something to hurt you, Right? Go and tell him his fault between thee and him alone. Don't gossip. Just go tell him what's wrong. And if he shall hear thee, notice this, not he will take his punishment. Thou hast gained thy brother. It is about restoring relationships. That's the heart of God, and that's to be our heart. Remember, we are a picture of him on this earth. You see, we confront sin not in order to judge someone, because understand, none of us have any grounds to, to judge anyone. We are sinners saved by grace. It's not about punishing people. That's not our desire. It's not about inflicting pain. From an earthly perspective, this may be the case, right? We may have suffered under someone that, that disciplined us and they treated us awfully, right? But that's not the case with God. I want you to turn to Hebrews 12, verses 6 through 11. Hebrews 12, 6 through 11, speaking of punishment, correction. 
For whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth, right? He chasteneth. That means he corrects them. He rides them. He gives pressure upon them and scourgeth every son whom he receiveth. He punishes them not for the sake that he hurts them. He wants to correct them. If ye endure chastening, God dealeth with you as with his son. He's doing this because he loves us. He wants the best for us. We take care of our children. We correct our children because we want to help them to become better. For what son is he whom the father chasteneth not? He says, what? What kind of a child will we have? We didn't care enough to correct them. Verse 8, check this out. But if you be without chastisement, you don't get correction. You don't get that, that, that the pressure God puts upon you. Where of all are you partakers? Then are you bastards and not sons? He's saying, look, with you, if you live this life and you don't have to deal with the correction of God, you don't have to deal with the Holy Spirit riding your back and making you correct things, there's a really good chance, guess what? You're not his son. You're not his son. You may believe it. You might be religious, but that doesn't mean you're not his child. Verse 9. Furthermore, we have had fathers of our flesh which corrected us. We had earthly parents, and we gave them reverence. Shall we not much rather be in subjection unto the Father of spirits and live? Verse 10. For they verily for a few days chastened us after their own pleasure, right? We may have been corrected by someone who beat us, and they may have actually done it because they wanted to. They didn't necessarily have our best interest in heart. But listen to this. But with God, this is the difference. But he for our Prophet, God wants us to learn, to grow, to develop, that we might be partakers of his holiness. If he's correcting us from unrighteous behavior and he's helping us to become more righteous, then we might become partakers of his holiness. Verse 11, now, no chastening for the present uh, seemeth to be joyous, but grievous. He said, look, no one likes to be corrected. No one wants to be, to be corrected. No one wants to be, to be punished, right? No one likes it, but let's just back to this verse. Nevertheless, Afterward, it yielded the peaceable fruit of righteousness unto them which are exercised thereby. We've got to realize the fact that God, if he's doing things in our life and he's allowing things in our life, he's correcting us, changing us. If he's trying to get us away from sin, he's trying to confront us on it so that we will make a change. Our Lord loves humanity. And from the very, very beginning, from the very fall, God has been working to restore us back to him. That is God's desire. And today, as we celebrate his resurrection, it's important to realize this is all about celebrating the victory of God over sin. Sin is our downfall. It was not his sacrificial death on the cross that delivers us, but in fact, the father accepting his sacrifice, his resurrection, that does the trick. That was the ultimate victory. This Easter Sunday, this resurrection Sunday, right? It is to celebrate our risen Savior, the message he sent to the farthest corners of the universe and to the pits of hell was this. And I think Paul says it so beautifully here in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 55 through 58. Love this. O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? The sting of death is sin and the strength of sin is the law. We are no longer bound to the law. We are freed through Christ and his death on the cross and resurrection. Verse 57, but thanks be to God, which giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, verse 58, therefore, because that is true in your life, because you are his child, because you have been saved, therefore, my beloved brethren, be ye steadfast, be unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, for as much as you know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. What you're doing, man, you're not wasting your time. Just keep doing right. I'm with you through it all. The reason we can celebrate is because Christ made an atonement for the sins of the world. That was the point of his death. That was the point of his resurrection, an atonement 
for sin. Because you see, just like the Israelites, right? We have sinned a great sin, right? And most of us, not just one. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. We all have the same problem, a sin problem. We've all broken God's law. And guess what? In breaking God's law, we stand guilty. We stand guilty before God. But praise be to God that he came to rescue us, right? When he offered his sinless life for our sinful life. Romans 3, verses 16 through 17 says this, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Verse 17, For God sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world. No, that wasn't the purpose. But that the world through him might be saved. Praise God. His love for humanity is revealed again and again and again and again. Jesus paid the debt that we owed because of our sin with his very own life, which is exactly what Moses is going to try to do. This is what he's trying to do in this moment in verse number 32. Yet now, if thou wilt forgive their sin, and if not, blot me, I pray thee, out of thy book, which thou hast written. Moses, understanding the gravity of these people's sin, is literally using his own life as a bargaining chip with God. He's remembering, remember up on the mountain, he, he remembers how much, how much his commitment was to these people. He was willing to risk himself. And here we see that displayed so amazingly. He's going, look, how about if you take my life? He's basically saying, look, you know what? If you won't forgive them, he's willing to give his life in place for them. Moses is offering himself for the sins of the people, which is exactly what Jesus did. Remember, Moses is an Old Testament picture of the Lord Jesus Christ, right? He's a picture of the deliverer, the Lord Jesus Christ. He delivered them out of their bondage, right? They were in bondage in Egypt, which is a picture of the world, a picture of sin. And he brought them out of that the same way the Lord Jesus Christ wins us out of our sinful behavior, right? So we have this picture of Moses. The problem is, as we're well aware, because Moses is a murderer, Moses isn't sinless, right? He does not have the power to do that. His heart's in the right place. Oh, he has a desire to do right, but just like the rest of us, guess what? He's not righteous. It would take righteous blood to pay the price for the sins of man. Verse 33, And the Lord said unto Moses, Whosoever hath sinned against me, him will I blot out of my book. Him will I blot out of my book. God tells Moses that he'll hold every individual accountable for their own sin. Their own sin. That individual accountability. And at the same standard, guess what? That's the standard that you and I live by today. God holds us individually accountable for our sin. We make the choices, every one of us, every day. What this means to us is that we can't hope that because our parents were good, godly folks, that we're going to be all squared away with God. It's not going to be our associations. It's not going to be our good works. It's not going to be our our religious beliefs or practices that will do anything for us. These things are useless when it comes to accountability to God. We are accountable to him. Now, when you and I go to an accountant, right? If you went to an accountant and you pay that accountant, he or she, what they're basically doing is you're going to calculate debt, right? That's what they're trying to figure out. And you're going to sit down, you're going to go, okay, how much do I owe state? How much is the IRS going to require me to pay 
federal. Man, I just need to know how much I'm going to have to pay. Now, if we, cho- if we choose not to pay our taxes because we are accountable to the government, guess what? The government will punish us. And guess what? They will make us pay by putting us in jail, right? So we're required because there's an accountability to make a payment. Now, the only way out of this would be if someone else were to step in and they were to pay your debt. You see where we're going here? Jesus Christ, you and I, we have a sin debt to the world. We have a sin debt to God because of the life we've led, the choices that we've made. We've had an opportunity to do right or to do wrong, and many times we have done wrong. And we have a debt that we have built up with God, and the only way it can be paid is if someone else paid it. God continues in verse 34. As we go back to that verse, Therefore, now, go, lead the people in, unto the place of which I have spoken unto thee. Behold, mine angel shall go before thee. Nevertheless, in the day when I visit, I will visit their sins upon them. Notice that last part. Nevertheless, in the day, the return of the king, when I visit, I will visit their sin upon them. The Lord's helping Moses understand, first of all, that he's getting him back on track to what he initially called him to do, right? The reason why they left Egypt was to get into the wilderness. This wilderness, then he's supposed to get him from the wilderness to the promised land. That's his job. That's what he's called to do. Moses' job was to lead them to the promised land. Now, as we look at this and we understand the Old Testament is always showing us pictures, right? There's an Old Testament picture that reveals our story in this. We've talked about it in the past, but to give a little bit of review, right? So we talked about the fact that Moses brought them out of the bondage of Egypt. The, in Egypt, you had the Pharaoh, who's a picture of Satan, right? Who's the taskmaster over the people, and they're in bondage, right? People are in bondage to sin, and they're freed from that sin through the deliverer. Moses, a picture of Jesus Christ. We see the Israelites, right, which is a picture. The individual the believer is pictured in, a, in the Israelites. That's you and us individually. Now, we're in the midst of the wilderness here, right? The wilderness, guess what that is? That's the Christian life. This is life, the Christian life. So here they find themselves in the midst of the wilderness. And guess what they're dealing with, just like you and I do? They're dealing with and falling prey to temptation falling prey to sin. So here they are in the same struggle that we are. We see this picture. We can see it mirroring our existence. Now, though they've made mistakes, we, and we've seen them. We've been watching them make mistake after mistake. God will guide them, and he will travel with them. Along the way, buddy, there are going to be many challenges that they're going to face. They're going to have all kinds of stuff that they're going to have to deal with, but their good shepherd, their good shepherd, guess what? He will not forsake them. He will stay with them, even though they're undeserving, even though they will turn against him, even though they will talk against him. He is faithful. Listen to this in 2 Corinthians 4, verses 6 through 10. Listen, this is awesome. For God, who commanded the light to shine out of darkness, right? God reached into this dark world to reach us with the gospel news, hath shined in our hearts. We received it, man. We have received it. We have become born-again children of God because we received the truth of God's word to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But, listen to this, verse 7, but we have this treasure in earthen vessels. This godly, incredible power, the Holy Spirit of God moves within us when we get saved and it dwells within us. It's stuck inside of earthen vessels. It's talking about this flesh, man. This flesh comes from the dust of the ground, this earthen vessel, that the excellency of the power may be of God and not of us, that God may shine out of us, that his power might work through us, not our own power. Verse eight, 
We are troubled on every side, yet not distressed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. We are persecuted, but not forsaken. Cast down, but not destroyed. Boy, listen to the The world needs to hear this message right now. They are troubled on every side, but not distressed. As Christians, we are not distressed. They're perplexed, but not in despair. Oh man, listen. They're persecuted, not forsaken, not forsaken, cast down, but not destroyed. This body, you can kill this body, but let me tell you what, my soul will live forever with the Lord. If you're a born-again child of God, that's true for you as well. Verse number 10, always bearing about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus Christ. We are a picture of his death, burial, and resurrection, that the life also of Jesus might be made manifest in our body. Wow, that we might live the abundant life that God intends for us. God intends for us to make it to the promised land, the abundant Christian life, man, pictured, pictured in that life is a promised land here in our story. Our precious Lord pictured here in Moses, not only goes with them, but he will protect them. He will comfort them on their journey. And guess what? You and I, just like the Israelites, we're on a journey. Every one of us, we're on our own personal journey. We're trying to get to the promised land. We're trying to get to that abundant life that the Lord has for us. And it's the problem of all the sin and all the things we allow to influence our lives that draw us off course or they get in the way of our journey. They make us stumble. They make us fall. Now, there will be some of us, man, we will, we will work our Christian life. We're going to walk. We're going to serve God. We're going to reach our final destination. For some of us, man, it might be that abundant life. It might be that walk with God that's pure and rich and beautiful. But for some of us, we may fall short. But either way, guess what? Our journey is going to come to an end. We're given a certain amount of time on this, on your births, on your, on your death, whatever those things are called. Stone that you're, they put up where you die. Tombstone, that's the one. There's a date where you're born, and there's a date when you die. That thing in between, that's your journey, okay? That dash is your journey. What will you do with it? Either way, verse 34 tells us that we will stand accountable to the God, to God. When that journey is finished, Verse 34, going back to that, it says, Therefore now go, lead the people unto the place of which I have spoken unto thee. Behold, mine angel shall go, with, go before thee. Nevertheless, in the day when I visit, I will visit their sin upon them. I will hold them accountable. I will hold them accountable. You see, there is a final accountability to God that all believers have. All of us. It's called the judgment seat of Christ. We've talked about it before. 2 Corinthians 5.10 tells us this, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that everyone may receive the things done in his body according to that he hath done, whether it be good or bad. Remember, we are making choices in life. The Israelites, every day of their walk through the journey through the wilderness, guess what they do? Making choices. They're choosing to do right, choosing to do wrong every day. You and I are doing the exact same thing. We're a picture of them. They're a picture of us. What this teaches us? as children of God, that the choice to do either the right thing or the wrong thing, once you get saved, that doesn't end. It isn't like you magically always make the right decision. You're still stuck in this body. And this body is unfortunately the old man. And that old man makes bad choices and does stupid things. And the new man's trying to say, hey, let's do the right thing. The old man's saying, let's do the wrong thing. And you and I have to choose, which will we do? Which will we follow? As we've traveled with these Israelites, 
and we will continue to travel with them. We are going to watch them deal with on their journey nothing but a series of choices. Do they do the right thing or they do the wrong thing? Do they serve God or do they serve their flesh, right? It all goes back, what we'll find is it all goes back to the choice they made at that golden calf. This is a pivotal moment in the history of humanity. Pivotal moment, the golden calf. Look at this, verse 35. And the Lord plagued the people because they made the calf which Aaron made. Remember Aaron, or remember that, 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 uh, that Stephen is going to mention this exact same sin way, 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 thousands and thousands of years in the future, talking about this very sin. Remember that when they were back in Egypt, understand this aspect, he says here, because they made the calf, he says, and the Lord plagued the people because they made the calf Aaron made. Here we see the word plague, the word plague. I looked up the word plague. It shows up 107 times in the Bible, 107 times in Scripture. When we look at this aspect, it says, what's interesting is prior to the golden calf, I'm going to point to something that I think is going to stand out to you, the fact that prior to the golden calf, the very opposite was true. It says here that they're going to be plagued. Prior to the golden calf, they were not plagued. You remember what happened. Now, remember, they were back in Egypt. And guess what happened? Ten plagues came upon Egypt. Do you remember what happened to them during those ten plagues? Well, the first one, they had fresh water to drink when all the rest of the, all of Egypt had nothing but blood to drink. They were untouched by millions of frogs that overran the land. They were not bothered in the least. They were not in any way affected by the lice that infested all of Egypt. They weren't even touched by the clouds of biting flies that tormented the Egyptian people. Their cattle were healthy and strong, man, while the cattle of the Egyptians rotted in the sun. They were unscathed as burning hail rained destruction upon Egypt. They went unscathed as burning hail fell. They were watched, they, they merely watched as billions of locusts literally poured out upon the land and ate everything. They enjoyed light in their homes. <laughs> when there was a supernatural darkness that fell over Egypt, where they could have no light whatsoever, yet the Israelites had light. And because of the Passover lamb, a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ, a picture of Christ, that Passover lamb, the Israelites were completely spared from any of the devastation or the horror of losing their firstborn. They were immune to every plague they ever saw. But now, they're going to face the effects of their own plague. Now, not because God is unkind, not because God is unloving. This plague is based upon their choice we see directly related to that golden calf. They chose to dishonor God, right? The one that created them, the one that protected them, the one who delivered them, for goodness sakes, the one who provided for them. Every step of the way, every part of this thing, God has provided for them again and again and again in the wilderness. God provides for us every single day, and yet we defy him on a daily basis. We are stiff-necked. We are rebellious by nature. And God's simply saying, you know what? Through all of that, even though you are, I love you. <laughs> I love you. And he extends grace to us. And we're going to see these plagues come down upon the children of Israel throughout their existence. In Numbers 16, verse 47 through 50, you'll see 14,700 people will die. 
Numbers 25, verses 9 through 13, 24,000 people will die of the plague. 2 Samuel 24, 70,000 people will die as a result of a plague. But what's really interesting in the study of the word plague, of that word showing up 107 times, of all the plagues, there was one, there was only one that was personal, one that was individual. What's interesting in the book of Leviticus, if you were to go to Leviticus chapter number 13 to chapter number 14, you'll find the word leprosy shows up 45 times. Out of 107 times, it shows up in the entire Bible 45 times in two chapters. And it's always talking about leprosy. And not surprisingly, leprosy is a picture of sin. A picture of sin. And you and I, today, we are still suffering with the effects of this plague. You and I right now, our, my goodness, sin has overrun our country. It has overrun our world. Unbelievably so. And this plague, right? What this plague does, just like leprosy, is it literally, it eats us alive. It eats us alive. It makes us unclean. It makes us diseased. There are people that feel unworthy to be loved because of the sin they've been involved in. Things that they've done, they feel as if they could never be forgiven. They are broken beyond understanding because of sin. This poisonous, horrific, horrible plague that is an individual plague based upon sin destroys humanity. Destroys humanity. And we're fighting it now harder than ever. But praise be to God. Why today is so special? Because guess what? We celebrate today our Savior's miracle cure for the plague of sin. Moses wanted to do this. He wanted to do it, but he was no mere human being can do it. You can't make an atonement for sin, right? He had a willingness to sacrifice his own life, but guess what? His sin nature made him ineligible. But there was one. One, and only one, that the calendar is based upon him. Holidays commemorate him, and today we praise him because, yes, he gave his life to offer a way to be healed from the sin, the plague of sin. But it wasn't just simply his death that heals those that are infected with the plague. It's not just that. It's the fact that he rose again, conquering death, hell, and the grave. And today he sits upon a throne in heaven as we speak. God loves us. He's given us a way. He literally looked at the plague of sin that rested upon this world that is devastating our planet as we speak. And he said, I'm going to send a solution. I'm going to send a cure through my son. And that blood, that magical, amazing, miraculous blood, when it is given, will pay the price. And on his resurrection, I will have accepted that sin debt, and it will be paid. Praise God. The plague is real. It's absolutely real. Yeah, there's a plague in the world right now, but man, nothing like what's happening. Think of the fact that the life that sin takes every day, alcohol, drugs, abuse, sacrifice, I mean, people committing suicide, sin is killing millions and millions and millions. It's destroying our planet as we speak. It is absolutely destructive, and millions pay the price. But today, guess what? We celebrate the cure. 
We celebrate the cure. God offers it to the world, for God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. He loves the planet, no matter who we are, no matter how broken we may be, no matter what we've done, God loves us right where we are, and He's willing to receive us, willing to forgive us, willing to reach into our lives, in our brokenness, and He's willing to take us and call us His own, make us His child, and to love us, to forgive us all of our sins through the death of Christ. Jesus came and paid the price. He is the cure. (laughs) The whole thing is. We get to choose. Will we be a casualty of the plague? Or will will you accept the free gift, right? The free gift of our risen Savior. And see, when you do receive that free gift, (laughs) then you get to experience the power of atonement. God loves you right where you are. He has paid the price. If you've received it, celebrate him today. Celebrate the victory, the cure that you've received. But if you're today and you say, you know what? I've never received that cure. I'm going to tell you that it's available to you right now. Right now, that cure is available to you. And I pray that you will receive it. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Lord, we thank you so much for today and the opportunity you've given us to be in your house. God, thank you for the power of the message today, God, and the power of atonement. I thank you, God, for leading and directing the message, God, for speaking to my heart. If no one else received anything from it, God, I know that you spoke to me. God, help us to be diligent in sharing this wonderful news that the cure has already been discovered for the plague that rests upon our world. And Father, just simply, people need to choose to receive it. We know that broad is the way to destruction and narrow is the way to salvation, God. But I pray there be one out there today that is ready to receive it. God, that they receive the cure. They would receive your death burial and resurrection gift. Their heads bowed and with their eyes closed. If you're here today and you say, you know what, Pastor, I don't, I don't know. I don't know. I, I don't never experienced the power of atonement. I've never been forgiven. I'm still living with the weight of sin upon my life. That plague is wreaking me, wreaking havoc in my life right now, but I'm tired of it. And I'm ready for the solution. I'm ready for God. Let me tell you this. He's ready for you right now. He looks at you when he was on the cross. He said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. He loves you right where you are. And if everyone else's head's bowed, I would ask you to look up at me. You don't receive Christ. You've never received him. You don't know for sure you're his child. Look at me. Look right in the camera. I want you to know that he loves you and he accepts you as you are. He's willing to receive you. He's willing to forgive you. He's willing to give you the greatest gift ever given, which is an atonement for your sin. If you would be willing to receive him, I'm going to give you that opportunity right now. If you would be willing to receive him, not by a magic prayer, not by the words of prayer, not through any kind of ceremony, this is your heart. The Bible says, for with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. Right now, I'm going to give you an opportunity to pray. And it's not God's not going to be listening to the words of the prayer. He'll be listening to your heart. And if in your heart of hearts you want to receive Christ as your Savior, this is your chance. This is your moment. That cure is being offered to you right now now and you're not promised tomorrow so you better take it today i promise you this is the greatest thing you'll ever do for yourself and it will set you free you'll be brought out of the burden of sin into the freedom of christ with our heads bowed and eyes closed you want to receive christ as your savior i'm going to pray a prayer and what i would ask you to do is repeat this prayer out loud right where you are you can do it in your head i don't care but unfortunately but uh, but what's what's important is that you repeat this prayer and speak it out to god with your heart 
Repeat after me if you want to receive Christ. Dear Lord, I know that I'm a sinner and I am so sorry for the things that I've done. I know that I've hurt you and I've broken your law and I would ask you, God, to forgive me. Lord, you paid the price on the cross for my sin debt. Then on the third day, you resurrected. We celebrate that today. I'm asking you right now to come into my heart to forgive me of my sins and to save my soul. God, make me your child. I turn from my wicked ways and I receive you as my Savior. Lord, thank you for saving me. I will see you in heaven one day. For it is in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.